Well, it is a great privilege to be with you uh, in this space. It's been a great privilege to get to know some of you this morning and then uh, some of your leadership team and John uh, over the course of the last number of years. The only thing about John that I don't like is that I cannot convince him to stop rooting for Edmonton as his hockey team. So you need to pray for your pastor that he'll have some a repentant heart over that issue. But uh, we've spent a lot of time together over the last uh, number of months. We traveled to Toronto together and we're part of a Jesus Collective uh, event there. And then John was just out recently at our church uh, in Surrey uh, preaching. And so uh, it's just a great privilege and joy to be with you uh, today. And when John told me that you were working through a series on a rule of life. I don't know what your reaction is when you think about the phrase, a rule of life, but my first reaction was, ugh, a rule? Why would I want to restrict my life in some way with all kinds of legalism and, and all kinds of rubbish that I would want to put into my life that would govern and guide it? My wife uh, lovingly tells me that my personality is what she would call rule-averse, which means that uh, I have never met a rule that I don't ask the question, why? Why do we need to do this? Why do I have to abide by this, too? And uh, you might find yourself in the same kind of category where you think, a rule of life, what in the world is that? Uh, but part of the rule of life actually is not about necessarily restricting in that way, per se, but actually guiding. Um, uh, the beauty of a rule of life is that it's a little bit like a, a trellis that helps a, a plant to grow so that it can have flourishing uh, in healthy and helpful ways. And part of the the, my life beyond the pastoral role that I have at Jericho, uh, both in the past and the present, is in uh, the wine industry and in the area of viticulture and enology. And I put myself through Bible college working at a winery. And so one of the things to know about grapevines is that they are viticulturally vigorous, but they're also horribly lazy. And they need a kind of training or trellising in a meaningful way. And so you don't just let a grapevine grow and grow and grow. They would, first of all, flop all over the ground. And then secondly, it would produce no meaningful fruit in any way. You need to take a grapevine, and if you've been out and seeing any vineyards, you see that they've got trellises, that they actually train the vines along so that, first of all, the plant can bear the weight of the fruit that is to be born there, and then also to give it some guidance in a meaningful way. And so, a rule of life is really like a, like a trellis for your intentions and practices as an individual and as a community so that all of the good fruit that God desires to bear in your life individually and then in your lives corporately as a faith community can grow. And this summer you've spent time talking already about several excellent ways in which 
that rule of life can guide and shape you. So you've talked about things like spiritual direction, spiritual friendship, contemplative prayer, and Sabbath rest. And so these are lots of ways in which uh, you can give guidance or receive guidance in your life to help bear some of that fruit. And, uh, and today we're going to talk about one of the elements of your corporate rule of life together that nobody likes to talk about and that is heaped with tons and tons of guilt. So hopefully we'll do away with some of that today. We're going to talk about uh, radical financial generosity. And we're going to ask the question, what does it look like to receive guidance or trellising in an area of our life as people who desire to follow Jesus in one of the most expensive cities in the world? And people who are seeking to be shaped by God's vision for life and God's values uh, find our orientation in the Scripture. And so we'll be heading into a few different passages today as we define and describe uh, what that looks like, and we'll do a little bit of practical brainstorming. And so I want you to begin to think, what's one area of my life that I might, or one step that I might take in the coming week in order to grow in the practice of generosity in your life. So, the first thing that we need to do when we talk about generous living is ask, why in the world do we even need to do this? Why include it in a rule of life for us as individuals and then particularly directed uh, in community as well. Why are Christians called to be generous? And the response here is rooted, like many things, in your rule of life, in the character and nature of God. And so the first thing to be said about generosity is that generosity is not our human idea of what we should or ought to do. Generosity begins with God. When we look through the Scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we see over and over and over again that God is revealed as one who is radically generous. Just a few examples. God radically and generously created all that we have to enjoy. God forgives generously doesn't matter how many times we come to God and say, oh, I'm here again, God. I've messed up in this area of my life. Forgiveness is radically and readily available. God provides generously for our needs. God pours out God's Spirit generously. God gives wisdom generously when we ask in James 1 verse 5, without finding fault. And so we see that generosity is a core element. It's, it's just embedded into God's DNA. God is generous. One of the most profound expressions of this is found in John chapter 3, where the writer says, God so loved that he gave. God's generous, generosity is on display. And so, as people who seek to follow God, if that's the way that you're orienting your life, 
then when you orient your life in that way and seek to live as a generous person, you're coming into alignment with who God is and how God operates in the world. And so when you and I act with generosity in some way, little or big, not just connected to our finances, we are coming into a deeper understanding and acting like our Father who is in heaven because God is always, always generous. And I love how author Gordon MacDonald puts this in uh, an excellent little devotional he's written about generosity. He said it this way, quote, God does not ask anything of us that he has not done first for us. In other words, God is a generous God, and so God doesn't ask us to be generous without going first and modeling that for us in little and in big ways in our lives and in the world. And then when you and I actually step into those places and grow in this area of our life in little or in significant ways, we're growing to be more like God, and we are also growing to reflect God to a watching world in an increasing way. There's a little uh, psalm that reflects this. It's poetic. It's tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles or on your device, turn to Psalm chapter 37. And we're going to look at a few verses from Psalm 37. And Psalm 37 is a study in contrasts. It's actually a masterful literary work that was written in ancient Hebrew and when it was written, it's written as an acrostic poem. And so each verse actually starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, something that we don't really pick up in our English translations of the Bible. But the point of Psalm 37 is a, it's a teaching poem, and it's intended to paint a contrast between those whose lives are oriented toward God and those whose lives are not. And so the psalmist uses uh, the ancient phraseology of the godly and the wicked in this. So let's look at just a few verses in the middle section of Psalm chapter 37. I'll be reading starting in verse 21, and we'll read a few verses there. Psalm 37, 21 says this, The wicked borrow and never repay, but the godly are generous givers. Verse 23, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. Verse 26, the godly always give generous loans to others, and their children are a blessing. And the psalm goes on to remind people that the Lord will never forget the godly, even in the midst of great turmoil and challenges in their lives. He'll watch over them and keep them safe. But the core element of this psalm is this picture of contrasts, those whose lives are oriented toward God and those whose lives are oriented away from God. And the core characteristic that the psalmist uses to distinguish there in this particular instance is the characteristic of generosity. The godly are generous, 
while the wicked are not. The godly, in their generosity, are reflecting the character of God. They're radically generous in Psalm 37 in their business practices and decisions, blessing others uh, financially, relationally, uh, their children, and in every other way. And so the psalmist keeps coming back to this point again and again that people who desire and want to follow God are radically generous people, again, because God is a radically generous God. The godly are known for their generosity in this text, which, which ought to give us a sense of pause, and if we just step back from that text and think about our lives and our world and ask the question, what are Christians known for in our world today? If we were to walk up and down Kingsway or go into a restaurant and ask people, hey, could you give a one-word description that would characterize people that you think claim to follow Jesus? What are some things that you think they would say? Just shout them out. Hypocrites, yeah, they'd probably start there. What else? Narrow-minded, yeah, what else would they say? Judgmental, yeah, what else? Kind, hopefully, they'd get there eventually, yeah. There's a, what else would they say? Caring, hopefully, yeah. yeah. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? Whereas Psalm 37 says, one of the primary things that characterizes people whose lives are turned towards God is they're generous. And in our culture today, that might not even make the top ten. But it is something that reflects the heart of God. Unfortunately, the label generous might historically describe the Christian movement, lots of great things in the world and even in our city. Hospitals and other agencies have been founded with generosity of heart by those who have compassion or who are kind and who also name the name of Jesus. But unfortunately, it doesn't tend to characterize people when they think about Christians that they know. And that's unfortunate because some of the most generous people that I know are people who are people of faith. They're radically selfless and generous people. And that applies to the people that I know across areas of their life much more than just their finances. So let's take a little bit of time and dive into a few scriptures that will help us understand three characteristics of people who are radically generous. And what does the Scripture teach about generosity? So, I think the first thing that could be said about those who are aspiring to be radically generous is that we just need to acknowledge uh, that it's about much, much more than financial generosity. Because radically generous people actually rarely start with the giving of their money. It actually starts with their heart being moved in some way, in compassion and in kindness, and then it moves sometimes into areas of financial generosity. And so radically generous people give 
mercy more foundationally than they give money, or they give mercy and not just money. Because really, if you think about it, anyone can give time or money to a cause or to another person. But when a person who says that they follow Jesus does that, they're actually adding another layer to that. Remember what Jesus says when he says that where your treasure, where your financial resources are, there will your heart be also. And so what Jesus is driving at is he's saying wherever your affections are connected to, wherever you have this sense of your, your heart being tugged toward relationally and or financially, then we know that some of your treasure, some of your financial resources are going to be there also. But it's firstly about your heart and about what's going on in your interior world. Your mercy and your money, if you're a person of faith who practices generosity, are being gifted together in those places. Your heart, your thoughts, your prayers, your talents, your efforts all flow toward those places where your resources are allocated and vice versa, where you allocate resources, then suddenly your heart begins to get knit in together. Uh, and, and that's why it's a beautiful thing, uh, for example, that here in your community, you support uh, places like the Ride for Refuge and like Inner Hope because you're actually, by putting that on your calendar and then by either raising money or participating, you're knitting yourself together in a tangible way with that particular cause and those people behind that. And that's the same thing that happens when you participate financially in the life of a faith community. It actually knits your heart in together with the people who are in attendance. And it does it in a unique way that you don't even realize sometimes over time. And it does it in a way that even just volunteering of your time doesn't necessarily do. Because there's something powerful that happens when we... When we our financial resources go somewhere and land somewhere. It actually connects us with those people and that place in a meaningful way. And that's actually what God is most interested in, in this conversation on generosity. Not about guilt or not about how much or how little you or other people give, not about even sometimes the where we get hung up on that. Should I give to my local church? Should I give to mission? Should I give to international need? How do I process all the needs in the world? But you start by figuring out where is your heart connected to? To whom is your heart connected? When you think about and pray for people, where do you start? And then start to work out, is there some way in which your financial resources are also linking in with that? And that's why when uh, in Christian community we talk about financial stewardship or giving, sometimes you'll hear the word like sacrifice or sacrificial giving used. 
And when I was growing up, I thought that meant that you sh it should really hurt you in some way, that giving should be this painful experience, that people are just dragging the money out of you, and that you're sacrificing it in some way that just is absolutely agonizing. But really, when we think about sacrificing, it's again that question of the heart. What would I be willing of my own interest to put aside in order to see the interests of others advanced in a meaningful way. Because a lot of people can actually participate financially in something, write a check, giving, even if it's as little as $5 a month, but radically generous people know that it's not actually about the amount of their gift, it's about the heart. It's about thinking about others and putting their interests ahead of my own interests. And that's actually really hard work in our day and in our time, particularly when the messaging that we receive is all about cost of living going up and back-to-school time is looming and this is a freakishly expensive time of year for families and for parents as they try and get all of that pieced together. And it can be very easy to think, oh yeah, nice to talk about it. I can't give any money away. There just is not enough to go around to cover my needs or the needs of my family. And that's also why I think God actually has this orientation and this instruction for us that first let's talk about your heart and where your heart is invested and release your heart in an increasingly meaningful way toward those who are in need. And then we can figure out things like amounts and all of those other realities. And one of the things that we're reminded of regularly in the Scriptures and that it does push on our understanding of generosity is that our generosity is to flow towards those who are on the margins, those who need justice, those who need to experience the love of God and God's people in tangible ways. Part of our financial resources is wisely directed to making a difference in the lives of those on the margins. Just a few examples from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 10. It says, Give generously to people who are poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord will bless you in everything you do. Proverbs 22, verse 9, Blessed are those who are generous because their generosity flows toward feeding those who are impoverished. 1 Timothy 6, Be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Always be ready to share with others. And so again, this is the concept of Christian generosity is sacrificially generous on behalf of others, investing in the thing that is most precious to God, and that is people. So that's why I love uh, when I listen uh, to John and others here talk about the partnerships that you have as a church with places like Inner Hope or Youth Unlimited or other organizations or people who are doing work of adoption and fostering, uh, just an incredible act of generosity toward 
people who are marginalized in some way. And when you and I make generous sacrifices in these categories to see that widows and orphans are cared for, that people who are hungry get fed, and the disenfranchised receive love, we're not just giving of our time or resources. Again, we're connecting into something powerful about the heart of God. Generous people make sure that at least part of their generosity is linked in to and expended on behalf of those who are in need because they're interested in giving mercy, not just money. So first, radically generous people give their mercy, give themselves, not just their money. Secondly, I would suggest that generous people give consistently and not conveniently. And here again, we're getting into the heart of what it means to be sacrificially generous because generosity is often connected to our intentions, what we want to do or how we want to be as a person. And if we connect to our talents, ideas, resources, and our time only when we have surplus of those things, that's not actually living into very generous spaces. Generous people give consistently, not conveniently. I love how this is articulated in uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah from the First Testament, uh, Isaiah 32, verse 8, where it says this, generous people plan to do what is generous, and then, this is the hard part, they stand firm in their generosity. They make a plan, and then it's not an inflexible plan, but it's a plan that is going to get some push because your budget and your time always do, and then they stand firm in their generosity. Now, the thing I think about here is my fitness routine. And this spring, I thought to myself, you know what, we're coming, rounding the corner from COVID. I just have a wonderful plan. I'm going to go back to running two or three times a week. This has been working well for me during the winter, and I'm just going to make sure that I get back up and I'm going to be out there pounding the pavement regularly. And I didn't actually put it in my calendar. I just told myself and a few other people, I'm, I'm going to run. I'm going to get back to running. And it just fell off of uh, my calendar. And I ran very, very little this string because basically I let other things take the place in my calendar and in my time. And I would tell myself, oh, I'll just sneak in a little bit of running wherever I can. And not surprisingly, there never seemed to be any space or time in my calendar. And that's because my plan was built on running when it was convenient as opposed to running consistently. And that's why it was a failure for me. And so if we translate this into the world of thinking about generosity, I don't know, maybe you do, but I don't know a single person who is radically generous who tries to squeeze generosity into their schedule or their budget. The people that I know who are generous actually and excel in giving away their time, 
they put volunteering into their calendar first, and then they build their life around it. People who I know excel uh, in the area of giving consistently build it into their financial plan first, and then they build the rest of their financial plan around it. Generous people, Isaiah says, plan to do what is generous, and then when they're tested to be less than generous or to redirect that in some way, they stand firm in the plan that they have made. Now, not in an inflexible way, but just in a way that is respectful of a plan and a boundary and an intention in their heart. And so the question that I would have for you is, do you have a generosity plan in your life? Do you have a plan for how you are going to invest your time in volunteering, the gifts and the influence that you might have, or your financial realities in this season? And if you don't have a plan, then it's likely that you'll only give when it's convenient, uh, which is nice, but it isn't generosity. It's not stepping into that space per se. And this area of consistency is a real area I know of growth for many of us. And so I've actually brought along something maybe to help a little bit with that uh, today. And that is a a gift that I've brought uh, for all of you. And it's a little book called The Genius of Generosity, Lessons from a Secret Pact Between Two Friends. And so I put copies of that at the back. Hopefully there's uh, enough for all of you to take one home and uh, do a little bit of reading if that's something that you want to grow in and, uh, and actually uh, get a little bit creative with putting a generosity plan together. And hopefully that's a way of continuing the conversation outside of our time uh, that we'll be able to have today. The other thing, just practically, I find in, in our family life that a generosity plan allows for is it allows us to be clear and our yes to be yes and our no to be no. So when someone comes and shows up uh, either at our door or in our world asking for a financial resource for a cause or otherwise, we build our plan in two categories. One category is just the areas of consistency that we want to give in, and then we try to build in a little buffer so that we can have a little bit, so that when people come and say, hey, I'm raising money for Ride for Refuge, hey, uh, we're, we're looking uh, at needing to support people in Ukraine and food security there, whatever it is, we've got a little bit of a buffer that we can be generous in that category, and we can say yes to that. But when we come to sort of the end of our plan, uh, and someone's, more people are pressing into that place, Uh, we actually are able to say respectfully, you know what, we actually have a giving plan in place and we've allocated all of our giving for this year. So what we would love to do or what we'd be happy to do is just take the information from you and we'd love to pray into that. Maybe that'll result in us changing our plan in some way uh, or maybe it'll it'll result in us adding that in, in the future. But at this time, we've allocated all of the giving that we have. And so it allows us to have respectful conversations in that. And we always are open to adjusting our plans. Remember, I'm rule-averse. And so in in our lives, we've found that there's actually just a real freedom in having a generosity plan, not constricting. It's like having a little uh, line in our budget that is for giving. 
And so that might be something that you experiment with or play around a little bit with and figure out what would that look like for you in some meaningful way. So we've looked at two characteristics of people who are generous. They give mercy, first of all, and not merely money. And then people who are generous work at it consistently, not just conveniently. And thirdly, they give indiscriminately and not reciprocally. And so this is one of the hardest ones, I would say, for me. And I really wrestle with this one because in my heart of hearts, when I give something, either time or finances in some way, I actually find that I'm expecting something in return. I'm giving, yes, with generosity in my heart, hopefully, but I'm giving also hoping that there's something that is coming back my way. So an example of this is I can remember being down uh, with our church in Central America in Guatemala on a cross-cultural learning and service trip. And we have a ministry partnership there where we distribute wheelchairs uh, to people who have mobility challenges. And so we were uh, in a space, we were doing a wheelchair distribution, and I can remember seeing this one guy in the lineup, and he's probably about the same age as me. And uh, so I started talking to people who were organizing it, people who knew him, and I found out that his legs had been injured in a workplace accident, and so he couldn't work again. And so whenever we do wheelchair distributions... Uh, in Guatemala, it's always a little bit of an act of trust because we just bring a truck loaded with chairs. We don't know if there's going to be kids there or adults, and so we just pray and hope that it all works itself out in terms of the sizes of chairs and the needs and all of the severity of injuries and all of those types of things. And it often has worked out. But seeing this guy, I thought to myself, all right, I'm going to step in here, and I want to make sure that we have the right chair for him. So I went to our supply truck, and I started rooting through, and I picked out just the right chair. It was one of the nicest chairs that had been donated from someone here in Canada. It would have cost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. It was in amazing condition, and I got excited. I'm getting the chair out, and I'm getting it ready, and I'm taking it down and getting him ready. He's coming up to the front of the line now, and I'm thinking to myself, this is just going to be amazing for this guy and his family. Like, this is going to radically transform his life. Maybe he can work again and provide for his family, and I'm getting excited because as he gets closer, I can see, yep, this is the perfect size of chair for him. We're going to get him fitted in the chair. This is going to be amazing. And so, uh, as he gets to the front of the line, in my very limited Spanish, I'm, I'm asking him, like, oh, what do you think? Uh, like, how, how is this chair for you? And I'm thinking to myself, oh, he's just going to gush with this. He's going to be effusive. Like, he's going to say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Brad. Thank you for coming all the way from Canada here to Guatemala and bringing this to you. And he picked out this chair just for me. This is going to change my life. So I'm waiting eagerly, and the guy looks at me right in the face and says, uh, do you have one that isn't pink? I don't want it if it's pink. And I was totally taken aback. Here we've done all this work for this guy. We've raised funds for this chair. We brought it all the way from Canada. Specifically, I've chosen this chair to meet his needs. And he's ungrateful because it's not the right color of chair for him. And I had to walk away because I was about to say some very unpastoral words to him in that moment. 
But as we were debriefing that experience later as a team that night, one of the things that I realized is even though that in my heart I had come to Guatemala to love and serve the people of Guatemala and to be altruistic, I had an expectation in my heart that was there below the surface that somehow the expression of generosity would result in an expression of gratitude. So I wasn't giving so that we could get that in any way, but when I pushed down, I realized I actually do expect it. And so the question that I had to wrestle with and still have to wrestle with is this, when you give something, what do you expect to get in return? You might expect a tax receipt, which isn't horrible, but there are other and incredible and creative ways that a lot of people give. So let's say you give by taking a meal over to another family or person in your community that's in need. The question is, do you then expect that either they or someone else is going to give you a meal when you're in need and you become bitter and a little bit cheeky when that doesn't arrive on your door in the same way that you are generous with other people. Or if you open up your home to other people in a generous space, or maybe you lend a vehicle to a person who needs it, and then they bring it back, and it doesn't have a full tank of gas. And then they ask you again for your vehicle, and you think, well, I'm not giving it to that person again. Forget it. My expectation was that this, this, and this would happen in that way. Or in religious settings, we get into the habit of saying, well, I'm, it's a little bit of a subtle thinking, but I, I'm going to give, but my understanding in my giving is that you're going to provide religious goods and services to me for finances that I have given to this church. And when that breaks down in some way, oh, they don't have programming for my kids in that way? What? What do I tithe for anyways? What in the world is going on? Or, I don't quite like it. Or, oh, we haven't had drummers during the summer. That's a problem. Why, why, are we, why do we even buy this stupid equipment anyways? There's subtle ways that our thinking can become tainted by an expectations that we're going to get something in return when we give. But Jesus is clear that if we only give to those who are going to give us something in return, that's not generosity. So one thing that you might want to try as a generosity experiment is to give something away, either a material good that you own, not just something that's at the end of its life, but something that you actually value in a meaningful way and give it away and not expect anything in return. Or your time. Figure out, is there a way that you could give your time without any sense that you'll get, oh, that was so good. Thank you for coming. Thank you for volunteering. We really needed you to do that in some way. Try an experiment. Give something away without anything back in return. 
And this is really where Christian generosity actually begins to ramp up and distinguish itself from just general philanthropy. And again, it's connected to God's generosity because God is so lavish. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For God gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love or if you are only generous with those who love you, what reward is there for that? In other words, see, when God gives, God expects nothing in return. God doesn't need anything in return because God gives both to those who love God and to those who do not believe that God exists and to those who curse and deny God's name. That's just how generous God is. I, on the other hand, and usually we, on the other hand, mostly give to those whom I feel will thank me or think well of me or perhaps will give me something back in return. But see, when God gives, God gives generously without finding fault, James 1 says. And this is the heart of Christian generosity. We do not give to get something. We don't give to people who are deserving, quote-unquote, of our gifts or our time or our energy. We don't give to those only who are in the same socioeconomic bracket as us so that they're going to return the favor in some point. We don't give money to somebody who we meet on the street and get them mandate and say, you should use this wisely. We don't give to charity so we can feel better about ourselves or get an income tax receipt at the end of the year. We don't give of our lives and our mercy because we want to ease our guilt in some way. We give generously because our Father in heaven gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. There's this lavish recklessness that characterizes God's generosity. And so if you are a person who says, I want to align my life and follow Jesus, then that kind of generosity, that recklessness, lavish generosity, ought to begin to characterize your life in small ways. And where we see this most clearly is actually in the life of Jesus and in what Jesus gave up for you and me. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 to 19 says this as we close. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well, but sees a brother or sister in need and shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show our truth by our actions. And our actions will show that we belong to the truth so that we will be confident when we stand before God. See, the most radically generous act 
in human history was actually not financial in any way, shape, or form. The most radical act of love and generosity that ever happened is what we remember as we gather around the table for worship and for the communion celebration. And that is that Jesus gave of himself for us, generously and willingly, gave up his body for us, which we commemorate by partaking of bread, and gave up and generously poured out his blood for us for the forgiveness of sins. And so Mo and the team are going to come, and they're going to lead us in times of worship and response. And so as we take this bread and this cup, I'm going to pray and ask that God would form us into a generous people who will be known in the world as representatives of God's lavish generosity. Let's pray together. God, you have been so incredibly generous and faithful and kind. You've given us life. You've given us this day. You've given us breath. You've given us so many good gifts for us to enjoy. And you have given us yourself. And so we thank you for that. Thank you for the radical act of generous love, sacrificial love that that embodied and modeled for us. And so, God, I ask that you would shape us as individuals, gift us with a, a, a desire to be generous, uh, that we would want to want to do your will, and then give us also capacity, Father, to do that. And we trust the work of your Spirit in each of us and also in this space and in this community that you will teach and instruct and grow and, and gift us with the ability to be known as people who are generous. And so we thank you for your generous love to us. We ask we would be good demonstrators of that to the world. In the name of Jesus, your Son, we pray. Amen.